0: or go to FailYourWay.com for more info. Now back to the show. Welcome to the After Party. It's time to change. You're just getting started. You can teach an old dog new ways, and not just on Saturday. Hey, this is Anna David. You're listening to After Party Pod. It's a podcast about addiction and recovery. You probably know that if you downloaded it. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you were hoping for an after party. Maybe you were hoping for information about how to throw an after party. Well, you're sort of getting it here. Uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for subscribing. If in fact you do subscribe, I have I've had the nicest communications today. Has been a day of lots of interactions with podcast listeners, not because. They slash you randomly emailed me, but because I sent out a newsletter, I, I send out after party newsletters every week, but that is to say after party pod is a part of after party magazine, a website that I run, uh, that posts 12 stories a day, mostly rehab reviews. If you are looking for rehab, uh, but also fun, funny stories about addiction and recovery news essays. Anyway, we have a newsletter. You can subscribe to that at afterpartynewsletter.com. But I, personally have, have a newsletter list. There's a decent number of people on it. And I have never sent a newsletter until today. You can get that at annadavidnewsletter.com. And so many of you wrote back to me and said that you found me through this podcast and shared with me your, your stories, fascinating stories. And um, God, it means a lot. So if you want to sign up for that newsletter, go ahead and do that. As I said, Anna David Newsletter, if you want to um, dot com, don't forget that. Um, but if you want to email me, uh, you can do that too. Anna at the dot com. I think I respond, I respond to all of them. Not that busy. I mean, I'm busy, but not that busy. Anyway, special episode for you today. You may have come here just for this and not know who I am. Uh, he, th- my guest is Noah Levine. You know who he is. He's a world-famous Buddhist teacher, author of multiple books, started Dharma Punks Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery. People say Refuge Recovery is going to surpass 12-step and, and um, you know take over. That's what people say. Uh, he and I first emailed about him coming on this podcast literally years ago, and um, I was really excited when he wrote back. And then I I was telling him this, I think I got kind of intimidated. I was reading his books and I I thought, you know, I don't, I don't know enough about Buddhism to talk to this guy. I don't know. And then, and then we got connected through someone he's working with and and previous podcast guest, Steven Danziger works with Noah. So anyway, we got connected. So then this is weird. We're connected. It's happening. It was scheduled to happen today. Last week I was at uh, a recovery conference, Innovations in Recovery, it's called, in San Diego. I had fun. Anyway, my friend, Bob Merrier, previous podcast guest, says to me, we're at this reception, he comes in, he's like, come on, you got to come, we're going to dinner with my friend Noah. And it was Noah. And um, a couple of us crashed this dinner that Noah was invited to, and he's great. And so, Yeah. What else can I tell you about him? Check out Refuge of Recovery. It's now a treatment center. Uh, it basically is a, tr- is, it's recovery that's based on Buddhist principles. And, um, and Noah is somebody, he, uh, his dad was a, was a very famous uh, Buddhist author. And then Noah had a crazy early life, uh, violent incarceration, um, crazy enough for him to get sober at 17. He's been sober, God damn it, 28 years. Is that right? I think so. Um, and, I mean, he was doing drugs at 11. So, uh, it, it, it's, it's a fascinating, crazy, wild story. And uh, I'm really honored to have him on this podcast. So, I hope you enjoy this one. This is Noah Levine. I first started taking drugs by chewing blocks of hash.
1: Oh, my God. I think my copy has, like, blood stains on it from shooting up while reading it. Hardy animal. I hate to say that because that makes me sound Paris Hilton-y. I was on the, as right. I used to call it, the Autobahn to nowhere. I'm very lucky because would you have wanted to have a celebrity
0: junkie for a dad? that water concerns me It's going down if you have a cat which I know you do mm-hmm. don't you worry about placing liquids close to electronics because the cat will not get over I it?
1: should worry about that but I don't
0: I do but maybe can you <laughs> move that to the floor I know I'm being super high maintenance but but maybe that's part of your point so you were saying that I take it too seriously tell me well
1: my own experience has been um, having very little fear of failure has allowed me to, like, take lots of risks mm-hmm. and also be, do a lot of self-care and not work too much. Mm-hmm. And that things have actually unfolded pretty well yeah. uh, without kind of putting too much effort, finding that balance.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's that whole, that whole thing about sort of d- not being attached to outcomes, right? Yeah. Um, but it's that fine line between, between how do you want something and, like, go for something and then let go of the outcome.
1: That's the that's the practice.
0: So how do we do that? Give us an, give us a couple of words.
1: Um, I mean, I think it's just exactly what you're saying is that you say, oh, I have this goal, I have this desire. Uh, is it a healthy desire? Is it? For me, I'm always going to look at is it based on some sort of generosity, some sort of service, some something other than self, Right. my goal, or right? is it a wholesome goal? And then if it fits that criteria of like, oh, yeah, I want to do this not only for myself but for the benefit of others. Or, mm-hmm. um, and then kind of this, this, these are the steps that I need to take, and I'm just going to walk through those steps without getting too focused on getting there, but this is the journey. These are right. the, the steps to take and – the practices to put into place and, and also being willing to, uh, you know, have days off and have time off and, and not work all of the time. How do you do
0: it. that? <laughs> I guess it's, schedule- I I guess it's scheduling. Uh-huh.
1: I guess it's like, um, just saying, you know, the, these days I, I work and these days I don't do anything.
0: Well, when you are, you travel so much sort of going to retreats in various places, isn't that sort of work and fun at the same time?
1: It can be, for sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that, that I do have that um, blessed uh, life where mm-hmm. I, do, I get to travel to interesting places. I get to go to beautiful retreat centers, and and it is um, somewhat fun, even though it is work still. So. Mm-hmm.
0: And how, how do I get to start doing that?
1: Um, I think that you get to do it by teaching. Really? You put together your teaching uh, you know, proposal, and then you start teaching at Esalen, and you start teaching at you know, uh, Hollyhock in British Columbia. And, right. And then you get to go to these, you know, majestic places and you have this uh, writer's workshop that you do or...
0: I speak at recovery colleges... Recovery
1: memoirs or whatever. You know, you teach people something.
0: Well, I mean, I speak at colleges in like Fargo, North Dakota. Sorry, is that one of my hairs on the mic? They go everywhere. I know that's disgusting. I was <laughs> just talking to a friend yesterday about... Sorry, we're segueing before we get into the fascinating topic of you. We will have no fear. We were talking yesterday about just how weird hair is and how disgusting it is. Not something you have to. Get I, I have with. no
1: idea what you're talking about. You've heard of it. I've heard. I used it in the 1980s.
0: <laughs> so good segue into your story. So for anybody, I'm imagining a lot of the listeners do know your story are very familiar with your work. Uh, but let's just pretend that there are some who are not, um, and walk them through your whole story. Your sober. Uh, Twenty coming up on twenty eight
1: years this this summer, yeah, and uh, so I mean, I feel like a big part of my story of everybody 's story is like what kind of family we were born into mm-hmm. and um, I was born into a, a family where my father had rejected Judaism and turned towards Eastern spirituality hinduism, Buddhism, Sufism. And by the time I was born, he was already writing and teaching. Stephen Levine, my father, uh, who was... By the time I was born, he was focusing more on death and dying. But, mm. but um, he had done all of this meditation practice and meditation teaching and wrote some wonderful books on, on Buddhist meditation. So I was born into that. And my mother, uh, my parents met in the 60s in um, Haight-Ashbury and hippie, you know, love fest. And... Um, my mother, you know, was interested in spirituality, but also was a total alcoholic, and you know, went to retreats, but never quite got it together. My parents were divorced when I was two years old, mm-hmm. and I feel like my childhood was this perfect setup of suffering and kind of there's addiction, and you know emotional unavailability and all of the stuff going on and there was also dharma what we call dharma or buddhist spiritual practice happening around me and my father very committed my stepmother andrea very committed to practice and so you know i had the kind of Developmental attachment stuff and trauma stuff that led me to um, suicidal feelings by mm-hmm. the age of five years old. I was considering suicide. And
0: you remember that?
1: I remember. It. It's like my earliest memories are of wanting out, mm-hmm. and my father was doing hospice work, so I was taught about death and 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 reincarnation, mm-hmm. and so uh, and I think also that that um, early like the cartoons mm-hmm. where. Uh, Wiley e. Coyote or whoever dies the but they 're always yeah. there the next, and then I think that, as a five year old I had this idea of death being a reset right a start over, a reincarnation
0: do you still have that idea as an adult?
1: Yeah, pretty much okay. <laughs> but uh, when I was suicidal as a kid, it felt like oh, I could get out and get a new you know start over new family, new uh, second chance kind of thing, because I was just lonely, afraid angst, you know, just in pain. Mm -hmm. And so suicidality was the first uh, sort of escapism for me, Mm -hmm. that fantasy. It was like a security blanket. If it gets bad enough, I could kill myself.
0: But in a way, it was because you had such a positive association with death. Not that, I mean, I'm sure it was combined with the sort of misery about life, but you didn't. It was. It was that death uh,
1: was very possibly a relief rather than, maybe what a lot of people think, which is mm, a punishment or a failure or the end. Mm-hmm. I didn't see death as the end.
0: Mm-hmm. And so how, how long did you feel that way or how often did you feel that way as a kid?
1: I felt that way pretty consistently, and that's really where the drugs and alcohol came in, is that um, I was looking for a way out, and then when I started smoking my parents' weed and drinking their booze and eating their acid and their mushrooms and everything else that I had access to, that you know, intoxication took the edge off of that uh, i want to escape Mm -hmm. and i found a way to escape without actually slitting my wrists Mm -hmm. so i started getting high at like seven years old and um and kept getting high and you know with some level of suicidality involved in it uh, uh more in the Uh, I'm not trying to kill myself, but I don't really care if I survive. Mm -hmm. And so crazy, Mm -hmm. risky Mm -hmm. behavior and uh, violence and, you know, finding myself in all of these really crazy situations, unsafe. And with a, um, I think I always had that, if it gets bad enough, I can get out. Mm -hmm. I also had this feeling all through my adolescence and drug use was, was that I'll be okay no matter what, even if I die. And so I think that something about death um, was um, safe to me. Mm-hmm. And there's like the worst thing that can happen is I can die, and I'm not that afraid of that. Right. And so I can just do anything and go anywhere, and you know, and it's okay, even though I was certainly in some very violent situations and I was incarcerated over and over. But even there, even when I'd get put into the juvenile hall, there was this feeling of like, this really sucks, and I'm going to be okay.
0: Wow so it 's almost like the suicidal ideation like saved you it made you fearless
1: some level yeah
0: what um how many times were you were you incarcerated
1: i don 't know the exact number, but like maybe a dozen times like mm-hmm. in and out and in and out somewhere around then um, you know i mean I started first time I got arrested, I was eleven years old. In junior high school, I think I got arrested five times. After that, when I basically dropped out and was running the streets, I had three felony arrests at 16 and 17 years old. And then I got sober when I was 17. Right. And so I was just sort of in and out, in and out until, and then at 17, they kept me in a group home until I turned 18.
0: What? And where was that?
1: That was in Santa Cruz.
0: And, um, and so, what you were doing drugs, you were drinking too, but what were you doing? Honestly? I was
1: drinking, um, you know, I mean, I started doing cocaine when I was like 12 and 13. And I mean, I ate a lot of LS, you know, acid was like the cheap drug for kids because I you mean, know, like $3 for a hit of acid. And so, I probably ate acid hundreds of times. I Meaning you were buying it at like a lot of Yeah, just like buying it on the street, yeah. And um, smoking tons of pot. Drinking was always consistent, but as a uh, in combination, mm-hmm. I, I wasn't somebody that was like, "Let's get beer and that's all." I was like, "Let's get drugs and let's get some, you know, something to wash the drugs down with." Um, I started really. It was crack and and heroin towards the end that that really kind of brought me to bottom, brought me to desperation and willingness. Um, I smoked crack for about a year and a half uh, 16 to 17 years old I mean I probably started when I was about 15 but at 16 like on the street smoking crack cocaine pretty much every day when I wasn't locked up or you know something and that was what really kicked my ass and really kind of got me to the place of It's such a painful drug. Like it's such a crazy high, but it's also just the come down and the, that physical withdrawal from smoking cocaine is so unpleasant. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I, I had a, Quite a while there, where I was like, I want to get clean, but I don't know how. Right, or at least want to get off a crack. And you know, if I could just be a responsible person that just smoked weed and drank beer, that would be great. But I could never do that.
0: Mm-hmm. And you got sober in jail.
1: I was in I was in juvenile hall, and I actually ended up I was in juvenile hall for about three months. Um, While they were doing sentencing And I thought I was going to do like 10 years In youth authority or prison Because I had another felony on top of Previous suspended sentences Um, But I I was in juvie that time And on my way to juvie And this connects with the suicidality um, I felt like okay this is it I'm going to go I'm going to kill myself I'm going to do a long time in prison I don't want to do the time and i'm gonna kill myself so i was in juvie i tried to uh kill myself in the holding cells, sort of like half ass suicide attempt right. where it's like you're in a holding cell and you have nothing to really means of destruction i started slamming my head against the concrete wall trying to like break my mm-hmm. skull open um oh, and they, were, they gave me a comb back then back to your topic of hair mm-hmm. i did have some, a little bit of hair back then probably a flat top or a mohawk or something And I started um, with the comb trying to like gnaw at my wrist, like comb myself to death, Mm. which is actually pretty funny, right, to think like, here I am with a comb trying to like pick out a vein, and then I'm slamming my head against the cement wall, and then so they put me in the padded room. And that was, um, I think, the first time that I got some clarity, some insight, something that... Made me understand for the first time in my life, I think, that I was in that position, in that situation, um, based on my own actions, mm-hmm. like where I took some responsibility. Mm-hmm. Up to that time, it was mostly blame, and I'm a victim, and it's the police, and it's the hippies, it's society. It was like everybody else. Right. But at that point, I said, oh, no, I, I did this, which was um, a flood of shame mm-hmm. of like, oh, I've hurt all of these people, and I've hurt myself and my family, and... So there's a flood of regret and remorse and shame, but there was also hope. Mm-hmm. Oh, if I got myself here, cause I had really felt stuck for a long time. Like this is just my life and it's going to be my life and it's going to get worse, not better. Right. Um, but with that resp- personal responsibility came some hope. And then I started doing, and my father called and said, uh, called the juvie and he said, do you want to try meditation? And, I, and I, I knew that the drugs and the alcohol were a core cause of my incarceration and my suffering. Right. And so I, I knew I had to quit. Um, I'd been sent to 12-step meetings since I was like 13 years old, court cards, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I knew about 12-step recovery and wasn't interested in what I saw as some sort of religious cult. Mm-hmm. Um, But my father said try meditation gave me mindfulness of breathing simple instruction something like breathing in know that you're breathing in breathing out know that you're breathing out focus your attention on the breath maybe count breathing in one breathing out two. And so I went back to my cell and started to do that. And I couldn't meditate very well. Like I didn't have a lot of concentration and I was detoxing and, you know, it was was unpleasant. But I got a sense right from the beginning in meditation um, that I could learn to ignore my mind Mm
0: -hmm. and that my
1: mind was not a safe place and Mm -hmm. that it was kind of, you know, trying to kill me on some level Mm -hmm. and that it was like the, the addict's mind. And so I started meditating and that was a big um, that was a big shift. And then I also started doing 12-step uh, H&I hospitals, institutions came in and talked about, you know, you and, and I knew one of the guys that came into the juvie from the streets. Right.
0: And didn't know he was sober until you saw him there. No,
1: Well, I knew that he wasn't getting high with us right. anymore. And right. his brother was an associate of mine that just gone to prison for murder. And, you know, so there was uh, – I he, I knew he wasn't around, but I didn't know that he was in, you know, 12-steps, you know, groups. So – I started to get a little more hope of like, okay, maybe like these guys are sober and they're cool right. and they're doing this. So maybe I need to do that. And meditation feels like, oh, there's some hope here and this will help me if I can do it consistently. And so I ended up getting sober for the most part, or at least setting the aspiration uh, to, to be sober while I was locked up. And then I had the doubt of like, I'm a 17-year-old am I a real alcoholic? Mm -hmm. Like I know I'm strung out on crack and I've been shooting heroin, but am I a real, like, can I drink wine later? Like I don't even Mm -hmm. like wine, but you know how the mind just says like, but when I'm an adult, I'm going to be able to drink responsibly. And I had some, uh, you know, like the big book says, like, if you're not certain that maybe you should try it. And so I think I did that when I was in the group home, I went and tried to drink. Mm-hmm. and then had this experiment of every time I drink, I can't stop. Mm-hmm. And I, it's just this compulsion to keep drinking, uh, even though my head would be saying like, okay, you've had three beers, stop. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't stop. Right, And that was kind of enough for me to say, uh, actually, I really want to try to be sober. I want to get out of this trouble that I'm in. Uh, and uh, so uh, I ended up, Establishing and maintaining sobriety and abstinence ever since then.
0: Mm-hmm. September 1st, is that what you said? Yeah, it was sometime Your when I was in the
1: group home, you know, uh, and I had these, like, home passes that I was drinking on where I'd go visit my mom and I'd go see my friends and get drunk. And uh, and that was, like, in July and August of mm-hmm. 1988. So just to be safe, I I celebrate my, uh, you know, sobriety date on uh, September 1st.
0: hmm Yeah, senior. Well, we're the same age. Oh shit, I hate talking about my age. But so senior (laughs) year in high school would Uh have been. Right. right? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Um, 98, right? Kidding. Um, (laughs) What, um, and so was, um, and so how uh, important was Buddhism to you then?
1: In the beginning, I mean, of course, I knew about Buddhism from my father, um, and I had some sense that I was doing Buddhist meditation, but it wasn't uh, important to me yet. For the first, for the first while, it was like, okay, mindfulness. Um, you know, meditation is important. I didn't actually even know what the Four Noble Truths or the Eightfold Path or what the Buddha actually taught. I just knew that I was meditating and that it was helpful to me. Mm-hmm. It was probably about a year, year and a half in, I was in this group home, I got out, and I still had the uh, delusional hope for a material solution. Mm-hmm. And I, wasn't, I didn't like the 12-step language about God and him and you know, all of this Judeo-Christian language I didn't like. I was an you know, anarchist, atheist, punk rocker, mm-hmm. and I didn't want to hear all of that Judeo-Christian language. Um, but the meditation was helping. And the fellowship, you know, was helpful And I liked the people that I was meeting At least some of them And, um, and It was a, it was about a year and a half in When I had the realization that what I was looking for Because I, I I think that so many of us like if i can get the relationship if mm-hmm. i can get the Job, stuff yeah. for me it was like motorcycle low rider mm-hmm. my record collection back you know like i had <laughs> low material aspirations Mm-mm. but i but i thought like that was what was going to make me happy and i got it all and i was I, kept, I you know i wasn't working the steps i was lying i was stealing i was you know sober mm-hmm. but totally dry sober right Um, and I got everything and I was getting in trouble with the police for graffiti and I was hanging out with gangs that were like in gang wars and it was like sober insanity, right? young, tough kind of street life that I'd been living, but now I was still living it, but I wasn't drinking. Yeah. And, um... And that was the, kind of a turning point for me at about 19 years old where I was like meditation's the only thing that I've gotten any sense of relief from my suffering from my confusion and so I'm going to dive deeper into meditation and also in the rooms in the 12-step rooms I've seen people like that are talking about working the steps and getting happy, joyous and free or whatever mm-hmm. so I was like, okay I'm going to really give the 12 steps a shot um, and you know I'm going to actually call a sponsor and not just have one and, mm-hmm. and really do that and so I did the 12. Steps as thoroughly as I could, uh, even though. I never came to believe that a power greater than myself was going to restore me to sanity. I just, mm-hmm. I never believed that. But I was willing to do the prayers and the meditation and the inventories and everything the else. The
0: prayers? The prayers are pretty intense.
1: Yeah. I, I would say the third step prayer three times a day, the seventh step prayer. Like, I would do it even though I didn't believe it. Mm-hmm. it just because I had the willingness of that, and that kind mm-hmm. of desperation. I was like, and I think maybe it said in the big book something about, like, you don't have to believe just the willingness. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, I have the willingness. To, right. I'm not. Uh, I'm. I'm willing. I'm, I. I don't think there's any such thing as God, but I'm willing to be wrong about that. Right. And so I'll do it. I'll pray. I'll. I'll. You know. I'll, I'm so maybe more agnostic on that level mm-hmm. of like I'm open-minded about it. And. Um, And then that was when I actually started to study Buddhism Mm -hmm. and started going to Buddhist meditation retreats with Jack Kornfield. And I met this Buddhist monk named Ajahn Amaro and started going to his retreats and uh, attending the weekly Buddhist meditation groups and and meetings. Uh,
0: And you went away for like – you would go on silent retreats for like – what's the longest?
1: Three months is the longest.
0: Jesus Christ. I I told you I went to Spirit Rock, but what I didn't tell you, the Mark Coleman retreat, what I didn't tell you is that it was a Three day. It was a weekend silent retreat and my mom and I cheated.
1: Yeah. Talk the whole time.
0: Not the whole time. Pass notes. Everyone else was so serious about it, but we, you know, we busted out into the woods and talked (laughs) just for like five minutes just to get it out.
1: Well, the thing about those silent retreats is it's the first day or two that's the hard part. And so like once you're like three days into silence, you start to get used to it and settle into it. And so then whether you're there for 10 days or 30 days or 90 days, once you're kind of in the silence and that's your practice and you understand it it's the, those first couple days usually that are the most difficult part for people
0: you wouldn't know why i don't buy that
1: i do why don't you? because
0: buy it? people say that about cleanses and uh-huh. not eating uh-huh. and that's nonsense
1: have you done that
0: I made it I, like I today.
1: I would say that too. Yeah. See, you're you're giving up before the you know because I've done the the cleanses and the fasting, and I also feel that way. The first couple of days are hard, and then three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, you kind of get into the place where you're like, yeah, this is okay. I can do this.
0: Ugh i don't know i mean i guess i get to like what you hear people in recovery like the sort of fuck it. it's like you go in with all good intentions and then like i feel so insane yeah. that i don't care what the benefits are right. and how easy it's going to be because right now it's just not possible well i mean i think that
1: uh, maybe because i had been meditating for a while and and in mindfulness buddhist meditation so much of it is learning to be uncomfortable right and to be with unpleasant mind states and sensations sitting still for 45 minutes or an hour at a time, it's like this hurts, right. but you learn to tolerate it. Right. And so, um, it, you know, part of the practice is learning to be uncomfortable and breaking that addiction to actually I need to be comfortable all the time. Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I feel like I told you about the guy, you know, I told you about Vedic meditation, the kind of meditation I practice. There was possibly some judgment from you about that form of meditation. Um, But I possibly, but, um, (laughs) you know, one of the guys I sort of follow, he's a friend of mine, this guy, Jeff Kober, who teaches Vedic meditation has been on the podcast, blah, blah, blah. Um, He talks about, yeah, that life is about being getting comfortable with discomfort, that what we call sadness and depression and all of these things, we're just trying, you know, to to name something that's just discomfort. What do you think of that?
1: Yeah, that sounds that sounds right. I mean, um I would I didn't quite catch why he kind of dismisses it on that, you know, so simply because those aff- what I'd call afflictive emotions are unpleasant, right? But they have different qualities to them, right? Sadness has a different unpleasant quality than fear right. or loneliness has a different unpleasant quality than uh, anxiousness or, you know, so yes, we have all of these different emotions and there's subtleties to them and there's unpleasant emotions and then there's pleasant emotions of joy and love and you know all of these other really pleasant mind states and, and emotions that we experience and you know the more mindful we are the more we start to understand that everything uh, is perceived as pleasant unpleasant or neutral Right. every emotion, every thought that enters the mind, Right. every sight, every smell, taste sensation in the body everything is constantly being perceived like that and it's our survival instinct, It's it's this evolutionary biology that wants to reject all of the unpleasantness right and cling to and crave and perhaps become addicted to everything pleasant.
0: So is the goal to have a neutral reaction then?
1: The goal is to respond, not neutral, but to actually have a, a response to the unpleasant that is compassion.
0: Yeah. I would say in terms of the, the negative emotions that we were talking about of negative feelings, like right. sadness, uh, Depri- what did you say? Sadness, anger, uh, anxiety, and loneliness. loneliness. yeah, sure. Um, all four feel the same to me. Right. Is that weird? They really do. Right. Because um, fear for me becomes very mental and very much torturing myself with like thoughts that are not real.
1: Uh-huh. But do you actually feel them exactly the same way in your body? Like where do you feel fear in your body?
0: Here is another thing. I hate that question because I don't... And I've had it in therapists, friends, right. whatever. I don't feel it in my body. Uh-huh. Like the closest I can get to identifying that mind state. is, is heart. Like I right. can be like, I sort of feel something here. Uh-huh.
1: But what happens in your stomach when Mm-mm. you're lonely? Nothing. Something does.
0: Nothing I'm conscious of.
1: Right. But that's, that's the important thing. And that's, uh, of course, where for me my bias as mindfulness meditator is that it's about being in our body and feeling that the emotional uh arising physically the somatic experience right. of the emotion which allows us to relate to it and to maybe soften around it or see what the body is doing around it and yeah of course it's a mental activity too from a buddhist perspective emotions are mental right but they have a physical component to them
0: See this has been a a thing for me Remember I was telling you I have misophonia
1: (laughs) Yeah tell me more about that
0: Um, well, you know, it's,
1: it's, tell, tell your listeners what that means.
0: I've written about it several times. And by the way, I've never gotten quite the response to anything I've ever written than people who wrote and said, I have this. And, you know, it's basically this intolerance for noise, but it's not an intolerance. It's, you know, you, you want to hurt. I mean, there are people who have killed people be, over these things. And we all have different ones, but my triggers are gum and um, loud talking and crinkling of bags and just certain kind of, it's like mouth stuff usually, but crinkling of bags and all that. And, um, oh, and I wrote a story uh for a magazine about it where i had to interview all these misophonia experts and one of them we, we were trying to identify where in my body i was um you're putting your mic down I, i'm on a roll yeah drink your water um I, I'll, I'll finish we'll get back to you but um but but where in my body i was fi- feeling that reaction because he couldn't he's like i can't help you until and we couldn't figure it out so he was chewing what was he chewing carrots into the phone trying to help me figure it out and i still couldn't so it's like so so how how can people you know, there probably are people listening who also don't know how to feel in their bodies. What can we do?
1: I mean, I mean, maybe there is some um, phenomena where the, maybe there actually are some people that can't, but I don't, right. I tend not to believe that. I tend to feel like everybody could with the practice of mindfulness, of actually just directing your attention into your body over and over and really learning to ignore your mind and to let the thoughts be in the background and not be identified with the mental activity and to just put all of your focus on the sensory, uh, including emotional sensations in the body, and that it's a, a habit that. That would be formed in a you know, way that you could train yourself to actually be able to do that. Um, I, I feel like it's hard to remember clearly, but I feel like when I started meditating, also, I was just totally in my head completely. And that maybe actually that's the normal state for most people is mm-hmm. the, this pretty sort of living in the thought world and in the future and in the past and in our reactive uh, you know, mental tendencies. Uh, But the more that I meditated and sat still and directed my attention to the body, the more I started to feel it and to be able to respond to it.
0: Um, Interesting. I mean, again, well, you know, I've been meditating for like 13 years in my way.
1: But your meditation practice doing the Vedic uh, Mm -hmm. mantra based is all in your head. Right. it's repeating something over and over a thought pattern in your head which is allowing you to concentrate your attention on those, on that phrase or those right. words and right, so but it's, it, it, it would make sense that, that it would actually not get you into your body right. and actually the whole point of the Vedic or transcendental meditation is not to feel the body but to actually transcend it Right. Right. that's, right. that's their whole idea which is maybe part of why you like it. I love it but it's also reinforced this inability to be in your body in that way
0: but maybe it's not so bad to not be in in your body.
1: Well, the problem from my perspective, the problem with not being in our body is that the body is going, the body and the mind are the cause of suffering. Mm-hmm. That's where the clinging to mm-hmm. impermanence is. That's where the aversion to pain is. That's where the sort of, self-centered i me, mine gets developed so by avoiding it you, we don't actually end the causes of suffering by right. transcending it when you come back and you're here then you still have the clinging and the aversion and the taking you can everything do personal that with
0: your mind i, I mean know. i've done it not yeah. all the time
1: right well certainly as my it's connected mind and body is completely connected right I think, you know, the first foundation of mindfulness in Buddhism is learning to ignore your mind and pay attention to your body. Mm -hmm. And I've thought about my own experience with that. And sometimes when I'm teaching, I talk about breaking the addiction to our mind. And like for addiction recovery, um, I think it was my father who said, I don't think people are actually addicted to drugs or alcohol. I think they're addicted to their mind, their mind that says drink, their mind that says use, their mind that says hate, their mind that says cling. Right. And that actually the first step is to break your addiction to that, your identification with it while being, you know, present in the body and letting, you know, kind of being able to disengage from the thought world. Now, um, which is a concentration practice. Now, when you're doing the mantra, you're doing that on some level because you're replacing. Uh, you know the thoughts with the mind but it's easy to stay really identification with are identified with I'm doing this mantra I'm saying this and it's all in my head rather than oh the mind has a mind of its own
0: right Right. and thoughts
1: arise and pass and they're not that personal and I actually have choice of whether I identify whether I take it personal whether I suffer about this right or I just come back to my breath back to my you know embodied presence
0: yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's, uh, you know, it's definitely something in long term recovery, understanding that like my what my mind is telling me is like absolute nonsense. A lot of the time has, has been the struggle. Yeah, really. Absolutely. Um, so but back to your journey. So 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 then this I, what I don't know about you is like this Dharma punks thing. Like what exactly how did it start? It didn't start with the book. It started with like, I'm going to gather people. I'm going to start a cult.
1: um how did it i think that like so all through my 20s i was just sort of on this search for enlightenment practicing meditation um and i you know and i experimented with mantra practice and sufi practice and you know yoga asana and you know it was really um interested in like what are all of these different I read the Bible I read the Quran and I was doing a, mostly my primary practice was Buddhist meditation and mm-hmm. going to retreats but I was very interested in kind of uh, what is the universal spiritual teachings and, and really studying quite a bit and, um, and I had some friends that were on that journey with me and most of us were coming from you know counter-cultural 1970s, 80s generation, generation X, you know, mostly, mm-hmm. and um, and I, and I got really into the Kerouac, uh, Ginsburg beat, you know, literature, um, Burroughs. I I, got, I started reading a lot of the Beats, and I think that I just started to identify with like, oh, those are my. Uh, sort of spiritual lineage ancestor these are these americans who are still a little bit crazy still a little bit radical but really talking about spiritual practice spiritual awakening Um, and so then i took the dharma bums and on the road sort of spiritual adventure i was also traveling a lot in my Mm -hmm. 20s and going to india and thailand and you know traveling around the states and and so I was so inspired by the that, Dharma Bums. And I was like, but I'm a punk rocker. I'm coming from that generation. Uh, and so I, I came up with the term Dharma Punks before the book, like you said, or before, uh, and probably before I was really teaching much, I was maybe – I had started to teach a little bit. I would started to go back into the juvenile hall where I started meditating and bringing meditation instructions to the kids. And we, we would have, like, little gatherings in my living room of the kind of local punk rock straight edge kids where we'd do some meditation. And, um, you know, it would usually end in some sort of, you know – dead legs are you familiar with dead legs like charlie horse where we'd be meditating mm. and then somebody would punch somebody and then somebody would punch somebody else and it, you know is this sort of testosterone you know young male mm-hmm. we're trying to be spiritual but we can't totally take it too seriously right you know like let's fart you know it's like right. like let's uh let's let's lighten the kind of right. mood and um and then When I started to write, when I made the decision, and I'd started to teach a bit. um, And yeah, so Dharma Punks was just something that I kind of identified with and some of my friends identified with. Uh, And then when I started to, when I made the decision to try to do a book, that was just the, the natural title of our crew.
0: And then, but then meetings started to grow.
1: Yeah. Well, when the book came out, and i was traveling and teaching and doing book tours and all of these kids all of these people came out and said we love it we want to do it but we don't want to go meditate with you know the baby boomer hippie meditation groups mm-hmm. we go there we don't feel comfortable they look at us funny you know like uh and so I'll, Coming from 12 step, I said, well, just do a peer led meditation group, mm-hmm. start a Dharma punks group mm-hmm. in your town and just, you know, get together and meditate together and listen to talks or read out of the, you know, literature or whatever. And so then in the beginning, you know, the, the book came out in 2003. So, uh, maybe in 04, 05, 06, like seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, there were, um, maybe 30 or 40 Dharma punks groups around the country where people were doing it. Because they were peer led, because there was no teacher, most of them ended up, uh, di- you know, dissolving. Uh, dissolving and not really continuing. It's hard to continue a, a group like that without any sort of real leadership or structure.
0: Which is why twelve step is so crazy, by the way.
1: That twelve steps goes, yeah, continues, yeah. It's
0: crazy. So, and then, um, and then, refuge recovery. Like, where does that connect, and how did that come about?
1: Well, there's a step in between, I think, Dharma Punks and Refuge Recovery, which is, um, as I started to teach more and and was living in New York and San Francisco, New York and Los Angeles, uh, and bigger and bigger groups came, and then people started saying, we need to start a nonprofit, like this is actually a community. Uh, And my second book was called Against the Stream, which was really looking at the Buddha's teachings and uh, how they're like a radical Going against greed, going against hatred, going against delusion, this spiritual revolutionary mm-hmm. practice, um, so we called the the community and the um, uh, the nonprofit and the the centers that we were opening against the stream, and then made a distinction between. Uh, Dharma punks and Against the Stream. Dharma punks being peer-led and sort of, you know, anarchist collective. Anybody can kind of take that on that identifies with it. I didn't want to have ownership of it. I was just like, kind of, you know, anybody can use mm-hmm. that if they want to. But Against the Stream, I felt, oh, no, I need to be responsible here and started training people to facilitate the groups. And to and so Against the Stream was a more um, authorized mm-hmm. n- meditation group. mm mm-hmm. Maybe to back up a little bit more, in the beginning, I decided not to do recovery, even though recovery is such a huge, you know, central part of my life and my practice. I didn't want to exclude all of the people that weren't in recovery you know like the dharma right. punks groups and the against the stream community it's like 50 50. interesting like half of the people are recovering addicts and half aren't but they want to meditate they're suffering they've got other right. stuff going on and they relate to buddhism and so i didn't want to exclude the non-recovery people from right. our, our buddhist communities And I was hoping for a long time that somebody and some people started doing interesting things about Buddhism and the 12 steps and uh, even starting kind of Buddhism and 12 step groups. And here's how you can understand this very Judeo-Christian philosophy through a Buddhist lens. And I thought that that was pretty cool. And I did some of that in the beginning myself. But at some point I was just like, why do I keep translating something that I know works for recovery, Buddhist practice, um, through this christian lens why do i have to do this translation well i feel like actually a direct here's what the buddha said and here's how we can apply it to our lives to end the suffering of addiction and all other forms of suffering right and nobody was doing it nobody was really stepping up to do it so i um i said okay well my my community it makes sense for my community to do it since it is such a big recovery community anyways and so we started you know developing refuge recovery and in Los Angeles, Refuge Recovery has been going for, like, maybe seven years at our meditation centers.
0: So, so okay, how many meditation centers are there?
1: There's two core ones in Los Angeles and mm-hmm. Hollywood and Santa Monica and then there's a third one in San Francisco okay. and then there's groups all over I mean there's Seattle and Portland and Austin and well, I
0: have a little schedule that I was handed when well there's refuge in.
1: recovery meetings now all over the country actually all you know in Europe and you know Mexico and Central America as well um, so there's refuge recovery meetings now everywhere right. but it started here uh, with a kind of like let's just do it for our community and then I did the book, and the book came out two years ago in June. And so there was maybe 10 refuge recovery meetings two years ago, and now there's, I think, close to 200 meetings happening at this you, point.
0: They have to register with you so you know about them. I mean, theoretically, I could go start one in my living room, and you would have no idea. Which would be fine with me. Right.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm fine with people doing that, and there's treatment centers that are doing them that don't register them, and there's you know people that are – I'm fine with people doing that. If people want it to be registered and open to the public, then they can kind of submit it to refuge recovery.org and get on the, you know, get on the list. It's similar to starting a 12-step meeting if you want to get registered with right. the, you know, AA directory, you have to submit. We have a meeting
0: here. Right, yeah. right. So so at the three centers or the four centers, are so against the stream meetings are happening as well as refuge recovery meetings? Like what goes on there?
1: So there's I'm, I'm talking about the against the stream centers okay. and the against the stream Center. Centers have refuge recovery meetings. Mm-hmm. All of them do have refuge recovery meetings. But then, separate from that, there we have the refuge recovery treatment center.
0: Right, and, and that's, that's relatively that's just,
1: new. Yeah, about a year and a half here mm-hmm. in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, there's you know that's more uh, detox, inpatient, outpatient, and using the refuge recovery program in conjunction with. Treat, you know t- traditional treatment, psychotherapy, psychiatry. Um, we focus a lot on attachment styles. We do EMDR with most of our people that are ready for that, trauma therapy, somatic experiencing. But we're using the refuge recovery, the four truths, the eightfold path of Buddhism, as the guide rather than the 12 steps.
0: Right. And was that always the plan to open a treatment center? It kind of. or Like
1: everything that I've done, it sort of organically came. Um, you know, like I just did Dharma punks and I was like, Oh, Dharma punks groups make sense. I did against the stream. I was like, Oh, I should train people. I'm like, Oh, I'm going to do refuge recovery. I want there to be a peer led thing. Oh, and we should probably do a professional treatment because people are going to want that. They're going to read this and the people that need treatment are going to want to be able to get this in treatment. So we should probably provide that as well. Mm -hmm. So it all sort of has unfolded in that. uh, What's the next right thing to do? Right. You know, we started the conversation with like making that goal without getting attached to the expectation. In some, we way, started
0: the conversation with hair. Let's with, be clear. Okay,
1: <laughs> hair, and then something about being relaxed around work. Yeah, something like that. Um, for me, I feel like, you know, many years—twenty-eight years ago or whatever—I set the um, probably not right in the beginning of my recovery, but within a couple of years, inspired by the twelfth step of kind of like passing it on, being of service. Um, inspired by the Buddhist uh, teaching around for the benefit of all living beings, this sort of bodhisattva, I just, you know, maybe to be fair, like 25 years ago or something, I said, how am I going to use my life to be of service? Mm -hmm. How am I going to use my life's energy to create a positive change in this world and to help people, uh, utilize the tools that I've used that have helped me so Mm -hmm. much. And so then all of it has, you know, Dharma punks and against the stream and refuge recovery, it's all just come out of that core. This is my goal.
0: Mm -hmm. This Mm -hmm. is
1: my goal. And it's been working pretty well, and I've never uh, – until I had children, mm-hmm. I never worried about money. Mm-hmm. It was always just like, how can I help, and how can I be of service, and I have confidence that I'll be taken care of. And, you know, I went to school, and I got a master's degree, and I became a psychotherapist. So I've had income. You know, mm-hmm. It's been Okay. Um, but I, none of it was like financially motivated right. until I became a parent. And then I was like, oh shit, like I actually have to think about, uh, supporting a family and supporting children and paying for college and all that stuff. And so then, you know, in my forties, things started to shift around, oh, it's not only be of service it's be of service and be financially responsible.
0: <laughs> yes. Yes. It's an epiphany I've had only semi recently yeah. myself. And so is there a plan to open numerous, uh, treatment centers?
1: I would like to. I think if, um, you know, if, the, if what we're doing in Los Angeles is successful and profitable at some point and there's enough money to then put into opening it, something on the East Coast or in the Northwest or Midwest or something, I'd like to see there be more um, refuge recovery treatment centers. Mm-hmm. And also uh, Stephen Danzinger, who I know has been on your show. After
0: Party Favorite. After
1: Party Favorite, uh, who's, you know, one of my good friends and colleagues and works with us at, at Refuge. Um, He and I are going to at some point do a a training, like a certification for people that work in other treatment centers to be able to be certified as refuge recovery counselors and be able to offer it in other treatment centers as well.
0: So um, and so for now, so what's next then?
1: I feel like I have my work cut out for me right now with um, trying to really just support refuge recovery and the nonprofit and the meetings, um, you know, around the around the world, Um, doing things like this so that people hear about it and can check it out, Mm -hmm. running the treatment center, parenting,
0: having days off, apparently. How many days off do you take? This is fascinating. Like every week, do you make yourself take like three days off?
1: Well, it's not so much three days off, but there'll be a lot of days. Like today, for instance, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm going to do this. Is this a day
0: off? Do you consider this a day off? I actually do have
1: a couple more things, but I went into the office for a couple Mm -hmm. hours this morning. I'll take most of the afternoon off. I have to teach a class tonight. Mm So some people would look at my schedule today and say, oh, you're working eight hours. But um, it's a pretty relaxed day, and I'm going to go. I did some errands this morning. I'm going to do some errands this afternoon.
0: Right, right. Well, um, and and how about the weirdness that this was scheduled and that we met last week, last whatever, Wednesday. Don't you think that's weird?
1: I think it's cosmic. Do you? Karmic.
0: Um, it was funny because I wouldn't associate you with like a recovery conference. I mean, now you're like a business dude that goes to recovery conferences, right? Yes. Which is weird, right? It's
1: totally weird because... You know, um, a lot of the conferences, like the one that we met at last week, you know, for the last few years, they've been calling me and saying, "Would you come speak?" Right, and but I you spo- didn't. Speak I didn't at this speak one. this year, but I've spoken there, I think, for the last three years. And, you know, they call me and they say, we want to pay you to come and, and, you know, speak about Buddhism and recovery. But now all of these treatment conferences are saying, we want you to come speak, but we want you to pay us in order to promote your recovery center. And And it's this really strange world that I've never been in. You know, I've been, you know, lecturing and teaching and sometimes I'll do it for free. Sometimes I'll do it for a donation. Often I do get paid to to speak in public. And so then, but now this treatment industry where they actually want people to pay to play because uh-huh. they're marketing. And so I, I'm, I'm not doing that. I'm not paying anywhere to, to speak, but I will show up and, you know, kind of market and visit with people and, and make those connections. Cause that's part of, of what, how, how a treatment center runs, I guess, I'm, I guess. I'm still learning.
0: Well, and I guess a treatment center runs by, um, bringing along, uh, three friends to crash a dinner, which was really nice of you. <laughs> I basically, you're responsible for my sustenance that night. Um, because of course, after party favorite. Can we call him that, Bob Marrier? Yes. Previous after party guest. Gotten a lot of emails about that episode. You should listen to that episode. Actually, I will listen to it. Um, it's it's very entertaining. Yeah, I was at this reception. I, I love
1: Bob, as you know. And, yes. And I love Bob even more since he actually did introduce us. We were going to meet anyway, but yes, he yes. Did introduce us. Well,
0: but I would say that you and Bob are a little bit in love. Is that we're, is that fair to say? Yeah, we're a little
1: bit in love. Yeah. It's, it's the first it's blush a, of romance. It's a man crush.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, I was at this sort of reception thing, and he was like calling and going like I meant you know, whatever it was It was a little chaotic and a little crazy yeah. but um but you know i I was surprised at um you know it 's a little bit of a camp vibe, like and it 's now my second sort of recovery conference situation, and it 's like you wouldn 't think that would be fun is sort of my point
1: yeah it's fun it is pretty fun, yeah, I have fun,
0: yeah, bonfires. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then you, you left the day that we really had fun. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but I was like walking on the beach and you know, it was nice. Nice. Um, that's pretty much all I've got. Is there anything that you would like, um, that you need the after with, with no attachment, the after party listeners to know?
1: No, I don't think so. I mean, I'm happy for people to know about Refuge Recovery to check out the book, to check out the website, um, also to know about Against the Stream, and that maybe they want to come and do a meditation retreat and um, go into that unpleasant silence. Some people, you know, also it's so much personality based. Some people find the silence so soothing, and you know, finally, no, nope, everybody's going to leave me alone for a week. Mm-hmm. So, uh, anyways, I'm just happy to be on, happy to spend some time with you.
0: Um, and can anybody show up at Against the Stream and just
1: kind of... Yeah, anybody can come, and it's donation-based, so they can just come and check it out, see what they think. Uh, Refuge recoveries or meetings are all donation-based, so everyone's welcome.
0: And I'll have links online, so you know, definitely go to the site, and, um, and that's it. Thank you, Noah. Welcome. All right, were you holding on to your seats during that one? It was a good one. So that was Noah Levine. Go check out Refuge Recovery and Against the Stream Uh, meetings all over. Start your own meeting. And if you want uh, information about what I'm doing too, go sign up for Anna David newsletter. I got a new podcast. You can find out about that by signing up for the newsletter. But first, go find out more about Noah Levine.